The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Tell me, what is the trouble between Huntington and the King? It has to do with the Great Charter. If King John knew better, he'd sign it without a fight. He's going to have to anyway. Huntington gave the King an ultimatum. Either he signs a charter guaranteeing that he rules according to laws fair to everyone, or he's faced with a rebellion. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, April 4th, 2019. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing, it's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and welcome to our show today, where our in-studio guest is Salim Mansour. Welcome to the show, Salim. Thank First you. time in 2019, believe it or not, although our fans have been able to see you quite frequently on our YouTube channel, and uh, you've been making quite some waves there and getting some audiences. And today our topic's going to be something that Canadians have been deeply enmeshed in for months now, and that is the SNC-Lavalin affair, which is considered a huge case regarding, I suppose you could say, Canadian corruption in government. And we'll get underway with that conversation right after we remind our listeners that they can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, and follow us on SoundCloud, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right social media links, our archived broadcasts, and of course, where we encourage you to offer your financial support so that we can get the word out and get some of these ideas out into the public mainstream that they do not seem to be hearing from the regular media and certainly what we call the mainstream media. MSN. Legacy media, legacy media, <laughs> <laughs> legacy media. That's one way of Fake looking at news. <laughs> well, Salim, when I first heard of this SNC Lavalin case, of course, I had never actually heard of the company SNC Lavalin, and trying to wade through the stack of papers that well, actually Bob has a stack of papers right here, a few inches thick, all news unbelievable newspaper clippings about this particular scandal. I was reminded, of course, of the Russian collusion scandal, which just, uh, which just finished, hopefully, with the exoneration of President Trump. But I couldn't get my head around the Russian collusion scandal because there were so many players, so many people involved in it. And it wasn't until the Epoch Times came out with a big centerfold chart which described everybody's involvement that I could actually start to think about considering, <laughs> did I know enough about the Russian collusion scandal? SNC-Lavalin has so many paths, so many connections, and so many areas that you could delve into from the rule of law, Jody Wilson-Raybould, the attorney general, uh, the jobs threat, apparently, which didn't even exist, the, the moral question mark of Justin Trudeau and his liberal government, Libya, Muammar Gaddafi. This just seems to be a, an ever-spreading spider of an intricate web of corruption and deceit, and at the center of it, of course, 
I think, is the Liberal government and Justin Trudeau. But can you put this into some sort of perspective for us, sort of connect all of these dots and follow a thread, perhaps the most important thread of all, and, and so that we can understand the SNC-Lavalin scandal? Yes, Robert. I think the metaphor of the web and the threads that goes in so many different directions grow as we pursue each of these a line that you have just alluded to, whether it is about the Attorney General, the Prime Minister, the crown jewel of a Quebec company in that sense, international issues, the way business is done internationally, in which uh, one, that's one of the web uh, where SNC Lavalon as a major international company in the world of construction, engineering, etc., has found itself caught up with the problems of doing business internationally. So there are all these multifarious threads on there. But I would say that at the nub of the issue, where all the threads come together at the center of it today, the story broke on February 7th, so we are now in April. It's going to be two months mm-hmm. uh, in a few days. And it has captivated uh, the media, it has captivated the Canadian people, and yet the question still remains, what is it all about? What it is all about is about the rule of law. Do we have in this country a two-tier justice system, or is it what we believe it should be, the rule of law, one for all, from coast to coast to coast. The symbol of the rule of law in our tradition is the lady blindfolded holding the scale of justice. And so justice is dispensed on the basis of evidence, on the basis of examination, on the basis of searching out what crime, if any, has been committed, and then let the chip fall where it may? Or is it that in our system, as the SNC Lavalan story, as we explore this, go forward, is that those who are rich, those who are powerful, those who are politically influential can tip the scale of the lady blindfolded in their favor? That's, I think, is the nub of the issue. And that's the scandal that we have to talk about. And I think the Canadian people senses that, what happened. Since the story broke on February the 7th, there have been four resignations. The former Attorney General Judy Wilson-Raybo was removed from her office of Attorney General and Justice Minister, demoted to the position of a veteran affairs minister, from which she then resigned and left the cabinet. It was then followed by the resignation of the principal secretary to the prime minister, Gerald Butts. Then it was followed by the resignation of the Treasury Board president, Jane Philpo. And finally, the clerk of the Privy Council, who's not supposed to be a political person, who represents the nonpartisan, impartial public administration. Clerk of the Privy Council is the head of that establishment that serves the country as a civil servant. He resigned, and in his letter he said that he could no longer be seen, perceived as being fair 
and fair enough to carry on the trust of the parliament and the people doing the job of a non-partisan establishment. So we are in a huge crisis on this matter. We have had one hearing under a lot of pressure take place. That was the Justice Committee hearing. And then that was shut down. And then we've had now most recently the Ethics Committee shut down. So the question is, what is there that the prime minister is hiding? Remember, the Watergate, it was not the crime that mattered. It was the cover-up that mattered. And so what is the prime minister hiding? So when we start exploring this, it leads into why did the attorney general, the former attorney general, Jody Wilson-Raybaugh, say no to the prime minister and his principal staff, including the clerk of the Privy Council, Michael Wernick, who has resigned, including the principal secretary, Gerald Butt, who has resigned. Why did she say no and stood adamantly opposed to the idea that she would not bend to the wishes of the prime minister, that SNC-Lavian should be given a remedial agreement, that is the DPA, and we can talk about that. And she said no. That question raises the whole issue of what this explosive case is all about. Well, well let's, let's talk on that thread, Salim, and, and ask, first of all, the historical context of it all as SNC-Lavian and their history of bad behavior. And that, I think, would get to that particular nub of why if we pull on that thread. So why don't you take us back to Libya and SNC and how they're involved in Libya? Yeah, a lot of people are wondering why. How, it just, SNC-Lavalin is a construction company, right? And they get huge government deals and government constructions. They build bridges. They build highways, roads, infrastructure. The, the key point here is that it's usually government contracts that right. they are bidding for. So how is it that a company that does such basic work that you, you we see around us all the time construction companies working how how do they how do they get involved in such an incredible political scandal well the the first part is as you as you correctly point out snc is one of the large international company based in Quebec and Montreal headquarter uh, that is engaged in construction work both within canada and outside canada but the SNC also has a record, a trail, like many other companies have in this business, of getting on the wrong side of the law. The wrong side of the law, the particular is the law that was passed by all the OECD countries, including Canada. Uh, the Canada brought, brought in that law. So the specific law that we are talking about here is within uh, the Canadian statute and the criminal code is called the Corruption of Foreign Public Officials Act. The Corruption of P Foreign Public Official Act was passed in 1998 19, and it came into law in 1999, it was 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. It was done to bring Canadian legal system and criminal code in line with the OECD countries. OECD is the Organization of Economic Culture and Development, that is the European countries, uh, 47 European countries together with Canada as, as a member. They, in 1997, passed the law on corruption and bribery of foreign officials. United States government has that law in its book. The thing is that money being spent by foreign governments uh, on their construction work, but being supported by aid money going from the Western governments, World Bank, UN agencies, and then independent 
private companies like SNC-Lavalin bidding for those contracts with respective governments in third world countries. It's like Bangladesh, which was this, one of the scandalous involvement of SNC that led to SNC being banned by World Bank in bidding in any World Bank funded cases was bribing the officials in Bangladesh to get the contract and then recycling that money through the expense account. Okay, so it's a, in a sense a double dipping taking place. All right, so that's the law we are now talking about the Canadian law, the Corruption of Foreign Public Official Act. SNC already had a record of having broken that law, and one of the penalties that SNC was facing was that it can no longer bid on any World Bank and United Nations related contracts around the world. Okay, It is a 10-year limitation there. The specific one that we are now talking about is the case of Libya. SNC-Lavalin was deeply involved in Libya going all the way back to 2004 when then Prime Minister Paul Martin went to Libya and dealt with the Libyan dictator Muammar Gaddafi and built relationship, Canada-Libyan relationship, which then followed with SNC-Lavalin bidding for contracts in Libya that is the Libyan government of Muammar Gaddafi. So the SNC had built bridges and roads and infrastructures in Libya. But in 2011, with the Arab uprising taking place right across the Arab world, that uprising also struck Libya for democracy and against these dictators. It seems that we have forgotten that, or most people have forgotten that. That was, quote-unquote, the Arab Spring. So Libya had an uprising, a massive uprising. And a civil war broke out between the people opposed to the dictator, Muammar Gaddafi and his family, and the common people. The UN interfered. How it interfered? It passed a UN resolution UN Security Council Resolution 1973, which put a no-fly zone over Libya so that the Libyan government, that's Gaddafi's jet planes and helicopters and aircrafts would not be able to operate and strafe civilian population. Then subsequently, the UN authorized military action in support of the civilian population and the anti-Gaddafi forces. The long and the short of it is it was a UN operation with the NATO forces going in and helping the overthrow of Gaddafi. Gaddafi was overthrown. All of Libyan assets were frozen. Oil and energy resources were frozen. And the UN said it would start releasing them to a bona fide Libyan authority that bring the Libyan situation into some semblance of law and order. The Arabs in the house tonight? Arabs in the house? All right, thank you. Good night. All right. Um, (laughs) What kind of Arab are you? Oh, good. Yeah, you're united. Good. (laughs) 
That's all I heard. I don't know if you answered me in Arabic or if you said the country just now. <laughs> One at a time there, fellas. <laughs> Which, what are you? What, what, what? Libya. Libya, Lebanon, any other L countries? Oh, good, yeah. Well, just for the record, it, it, just, you're a stone's throw away from each other. Listen, I, um... <laughs> Two people can have very different perceptions of the same conversation. He clearly stated the PM is not asking her to do anything illegal. They're asking her to use this legal tool that they put in place uh, and to consider a possible DPA for SNC-Lavalin. Well, it sounds like that tool was put into place for SNC-Lavalin. So again, going back to the fact that Ms. Wilson-Raybould was saying that she was trying to protect the government. And I suspect the reason why she recorded that conversation on December 19th was because she had had enough of them saying to her, please use all the tools at your disposal. And by the way, the prime minister would really like uh, you to do that. So it, it, Mr. Wernick can say all he wants, that he was not pressuring her, but clearly it, it sounds like that to me, that that is absolutely how I would have uh, taken being on the receiving end of those conversations. Uh, but the fact is, is that the, Ms. Wilson-Raybould, as the Attorney General of Canada, took the advice of the prosecutor responsible and acted upon it and she said repeatedly over and over again that she will not do what they're asking because she doesn't believe it is is appropriate in this case so the libyan government has fallen the new government is in its place where does snc lavalin fit into all of this exactly so once the new situation evolved post gaddafi regime the files documents dockets of the Libyan government of Gaddafi were now all accessible to the new people. And they started handing these over to the UN personnel. And the respective files of respective countries that were engaged with the Gaddafi government were then passed on to those governments to disclose what had happened. So the Canadian relationship with the Libyan government, in which SNC-Lavalin was deeply involved in doing business with Muammar Gaddafi, came into the hands of the Canadian government, you know, through the United Nations agency. And our people in Ottawa, that is in the Department of the Attorney General, in the Justice Department, they started then doing their vetting of those documents, the examination of those documents. But here, the interesting thing is, that the year when these documents started coming into Canada turned out to be our election year, 2015. We were in an election mode. So whatever was happening was happening by our professionals in the Justice Department, in the Attorney General's office. It was Harper government, but then Harper government was defeated in October, and it was now a new government, the liberal government. But the public officials are the same in the sense of the, admi- the, the, the prosecutors and the administrators, they are the same people. 
they are the civil servant and they were doing their due diligence and they were examining the cases. But what the Harper government has done, and this is what the Canadian public has to understand, so you hear a little bit of backtracking. What the Harper government had done way back when it was first selected in 2006, it was a minority government in 2006, Paul Martin's government had fallen. The fall of the liberal government under Paul Martin in 2006 was a result of the ad scam scandal in Quebec during the Chrétien administration. Okay, that was such a scandal that eventually led to the defeat of the liberals. First of all, in 2004, the liberals were returned to office, but in a minority government situation. Paul Martin thought that he would be able to clean up the act by appointing an independent commission, the Gomery Commission. But that didn't save him. The government fell in 2006, and Harper government came in. What Harper government did in a minority position was they created, they passed a law, and they created a public prosecution service. So the law that was passed was the Public Prosecution Services Act. This office was created within the Attorney General to further insulate the prosecution office from political influence. And a director is responsible for that office, the director of the Public Prosecution Service, who is answerable to and supervised by the Attorney General. So now let's fast forward to 2015. The Office of the Public Prosecution is looking at the papers. And what happens is now, by the drips and drabs of stories in the media that has come out, is that the SNC Lavalan was complicit beyond the issue of having contract with the Libyan government to build in Libyan infrastructure, ports, airports, you know, oil tankers and so on. They were complicit in personal relationship. The story is that it's up to fifty million dollars was given to Gaddafi and his son as basically bribes, you know. $130 million is missing from the books under SNC-Lavalin. Some people like Conrad Black have said that giving bribes to corrupt officials is par for the course in a lot of dealings in the world. But isn't there a bit of a difference between paying off the local building inspector to turn a blind eye to your shed in the backyard <laughs> and, and giving $48 million to a murderous, torturous dictator? Exactly, Robert. So that's the issue here. So when, the, when these disclosures take place, when the senior vice president of SNC-Lavalin, who happens to be a Libyan-Canadian, and therefore we can infer, was hired by SNC-Lavalin to do his business in Libya, a man by the name of Ben Isa gets arrested after the fall of the Gaddafi regime by the Swiss government and is held by the Swiss government for something like 29 months, you and I don't know what the people in the Office of the Public Prosecution Services know as a result of documents that had been transferred from Switzerland on just one man, Ben Isa, and what he has revealed to them. You know, all of those things will eventually come out if there is a case and the matter goes to the court. But the prosecutors have been collecting the evidences.
And so there is criminality over here. And the criminality over here is not simply criminality of a common type. It is a criminality in which SNC-Lavalin was engaged with a government, a dictator, whose crimes were crimes against humanity. Could it be said that, that to- his money that they gave to this Gaddafi and his son, could, could that money then be turned around and used to buy the, the means to kill and to torture their citizens? Well, that's what we have to find out. But the, but the point is that when you're buying a yacht for the son of the dictator, when you are procuring underage children or women for the dictator and his family. You are engaging in an activity, quote-unquote criminal, in which there are victims, the victims of the Libyan people. Okay? Those are the files that were handed over by the Libyan authorities via the United Nations to it is not simply about the SNC Lavalan. There are maybe other things that was handed over. But in, we are now talking about the specific case of SNC Lavalan because this case has taken on a dimension in Canadian politics now. That is, the Office of Public Prosecution Service doing their examination indicated to the Attorney General, the former Attorney General at that time, in July, August of 2018, that they had reached a decision that they are going to go forward with prosecuting SNC-Lavalin in court. In the meantime, the Canadian government is being lobbied incessantly. It is reported that the SNC officials made 80 trips to the PMO, the Prime Minister's office, to engage in lobbying. For what? To find a way to get a remedial agreement so that they do not get prosecuted, but they're fined and and life can go on. Which would allow them to to bid on federal government contracts. Exactly, to function. So what does the government do? The government basically amends the criminal code by putting in an amendment in The budget bill of 2018 is an omnibus budget bill. And they slide 500 pages (laughs) and they slide, you know, this amendment that nobody pays attention to. Now, if they were serious about amending a criminal code, it should have been a standalone bill. But that's what they didn't do. They sneaked it. So we can infer the lobbying effort of SNC-Lavalin paid off by the Trudeau government pushing this through the budget bill and having this DPA approved. So now, once the DPA is approved, the prime minister and his people, the finance minister and his people, the chief, the, the, the clerk of the Privy Council, the principal secretary, they start putting pressure on the attorney general to give SNC-Lavalin a deferred prosecution, that is a remedial agreement. She says no. The result then is she is removed from her position. The next day, I understand. 
That's right. She is removed. No explanation is given. She's demoted into veteran affairs. Okay? When the story broke on February 17 in Globe and Mail that there was pressures brought upon the Attorney General to get SNC-Lavalin out of prosecution with a deferred prosecution agreement, there's a remedial agreement, we get into the situation of asking the question, why? That's when the whole thing starts unraveling. The Prime Minister says he has not directed the former Attorney General to do anything. It was simply indicating that that should be an option considered because it is so important that his job is to protect jobs in Quebec. And a prosecution against SNC-Lavalin might lead to loss of Canadian jobs, Quebec jobs. The company might move its headquarters from Montreal to somewhere else, or it might eventually lead to the breakdown of the company. You know, the dismantling of the company. So that's what the economic interest was, what is pushing the prime minister and his people to get the attorney general to drop the case. You have to ask yourself the question if that's really true, because this particular prime minister who has been found to be unethical by the Ethics Commission, uh, who has been found to accept gifts, like with the Aga Khan and his vacation, who really doesn't care about jobs because that's self-evident from the uh, the 100,000 plus jobs that have been destroyed in Alberta from his energy policy. So I find it really hard to believe that any of that stands as Trudeau's motivation. Couple that with the fact that he has accepted gifts in the past, that SNC-Lavalin have given bribes to government officials in the past, You have to put the two together, and what I'm coming up with sounds pretty close to SNC-Lavalin buying off the Canadian government and the Prime Minister to make its own laws, so that we have another Jussie Smollett system here, one law for uh, the connected and another law for the rest of us. Exactly. So that's what the opening observation, I mean, it all comes together, the nub, that this is about the rule of law. Where are we headed in Canada under this prime minister and under the liberal government? Is it a law, one for the favored, one for the powerful, one for the influential, one for the liberal connected people, and another for the rest of us? Hello. Hello, Michael. It's Jody. Hi. Sorry about the phone tag. That's okay. I'm calling about um, the... uh deferred prosecution agreement thing and SNC and so on. I wanted to pass on uh, where the PM's at. Our intelligence from various sources is that the company is getting to a very serious point now. Uh, The board has asked uh, consulting firms for options for the board for their next meeting, which could be selling out to somebody else, moving, you know, various things. So, and it seems to be real and not not a bluff. So there's a lot of anxiety, like another rising anxiety, as you can imagine, about uh, signature firm and job loss and all that coming after the Oshawa thing and what's going on in Calgary and whatnot. So the PM wants to be able to say uh, that he has tried everything he can, uh, you know, within within a legitimate toolbox to try to head that off. Um, 
so he's he's quite determined <laughs> quite firm he wants to he wants to know why the dpa route which parliament provided for isn't being used and i think he's going to find a way to get it done one way or another so he's in that kind of mood and um, i wanted to be aware of that okay because i think he feels the government has to have done everything it can before we lose nine thousand jobs in a signature canadian firm right so again i'm i'm confident in where I've, i'm at and my views on snc and the the dpa haven't changed this is um, a constitutional principle of prosecutorial independence that michael i have to say including this conversation previous conversations that i've had with the prime minister and many other people around it it's entirely inappropriate and it is political interference because I can't act in a manner, and the prosecution can't act in a manner that is um, not objective, that isn't independent. I can't act in a partisan way, and it can't be politically motivated. It's not interference. The statute specifically has these other provisions in it that allow you to ask questions of the DPP, that's, and that's provided for. It's not interference. It's but I, but I would, but I would have to issue a directive. I would have to gazette this. The prosecutor, she is a by-the-book person. And I I hear you on the jobs and wanting to save jobs. I mean, we all want to do that. This goes far beyond saving jobs. This is about the integrity of the prime minister and interference. There's no way that anybody would interpret this other than interference if I was to step in. I'm surprised that you and I are having this conversation, but I'm just saying that I really feel uncomfortable and about the appropriateness of this conversation. Okay, I, I understand that, but I, I mean, I think his view is he's not asking you to do anything appropriate or to interfere. He's asking you to use all of the tools that you lawfully have at your disposal. Um, I, 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 I know I have a tool under under the prosecution act that i can use i do not believe it is appropriate to use it in this case okay all right i mean then that's that's clear no no i mean i respect where you're coming from i just think you know what i like i i hope that you do because i don't think anybody respects this i mean the the conversation that jerry and katie had with my chief of staff and i have it like she wrote down what they said like saying that they don't want to have anything or hear any more about the legalities but want to talk about jobs entirely inappropriate this is not a great place for me to be in i don't relish being in this place but what i am confident of is that i've given the prime minister my best advice to protect him and to protect the constitutional principle of prosecutorial independence okay there's not much more we can cover now then um i understand where you're coming from uh, Okay. Thanks for calling. Thanks. Thanks for calling back so quickly. No problem. And, uh, I'm waiting for the big, right. the other shoe to drop, so I'm not uh, under any illusion how um, the prime minister um, has and gets things that he wants, and I'm just, uh, I'm just stuck doing the best job that I can. All right. Okay. Thanks. Bye.
You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. It's thanks to our financial supporters that it's possible for us to continue on our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with you. Visit www.justrightmedia.org or go directly to paypal.me slash justrightmedia to offer your financial support. And while you're there, be sure to sample our archive broadcasts featuring an array of timeless discussions of all things just right about freedom and capitalism. We're in studio with Salim Mansour. And Salim, I wanted to ask a general question that speaks to a bigger issue. And I guess I would broadly ask, how does one deal with corrupt nations in a virtuous way if we're from a supposedly you know, greater democracy. We've had that problem here. I was going to ask you, you think you're talking about Canada? (laughs) No, that's funny. I'm coming back to that. But we're in the same situation here in London. We have a deal with Saudi Arabia where we're producing stuff for Saudi Arabia. And if the concern is doing business with countries that enslave their own people, et cetera, et cetera, where, where does that line get drawn between what is acceptable and what is not? I mean, corruption and crony politics, as they call it, is is rampant in every form of government, whether it's on this side of the ocean or on the other side of the ocean. Is there any way to, to start drawing a line there that we can visibly see? Well, that's the effort that is ongoing. I don't think there is at any moment that effort can be said that we have reached it, we have dealt with the problem, and it is, you know, everything is fine. Because on a generic sense, and on a philosophical sense that I think you are coming on this, the generic answer is that corruption is part of human nature. And the remedy, with all of its imperfection, is to try to make the contractual agreement between the parties that is making the contract more and more transparent, so that we can see if and where in this case, bribery is taking place, who's bribing whom and how it is being conducted become an open matter. So then that becomes a deterrent. Mm-hmm. Okay? And, and that's what led the OECD in 1997 to pass the law on bribery and corruption of foreign officials, which was then followed by the Canadians passing the law, the Corruption of Foreign Public Officials Act. You notice notice they say foreign officials, but they don't say there's anything wrong with... Pardon me? (laughs) They say foreign officials, but they say there's nothing necessarily wrong by implication of... of, bribing your local officials. No, nothing, but those will fall under within our domestic laws. Mm -hmm. So we are talking about, you know, different uh, jurisdictions. So, yes. So obviously those two acts already are indicative of this trend that you're talking about as we are looking at trying to improve and make more fair, if you want to put it that way, our relationships with one another. Would that be correct? Because obviously something led to those acts themselves. There, there must have been problems with bribery and issues like that going in, into having to create those kinds of legislative responses. Correct. I mean, in this particular case that we have been talking about over the past little while, the laws are in the book. The former Attorney General was acting on the basis of her responsibility to execute the law whatever may be her activism, whatever may be her personal foibles and predicaments and idiosyncrasies are beside the point. She was informed by the Director of Public Prosecution Services, Kathleen Roussel, that her officials had determined to indict the SNC-Lavalin in court and take the matter to court. 
that's exactly the place where you clear up your thing, which is what you were referring to, the Jesse Smollett case, that if, if he wanted to be cleared, let the case go to the court and then you prove that those charges were all false because there is a presumption of innocence. So the burden of proof to prove that whether it is Juicy Smollett, whether it is President Trump, whether it is in this case SNC Lavalan, is with the prosecutors. The prosecutors have done their research and they have found sufficient or more than sufficient evidence. And as I have told you the story, that this has to do with the Libyan government that was indicted for crimes against humanity. And you are behaving and acting with that government. You're complicit with that government. So the prosecutors have done their work. They are going to proceed to the court. And the prime minister is saying, no, give them a pass. You see, mm -hmm. that's the two-tier justice system. On what basis is the prime minister saying that? Are that was my next question. Like, why did Jody Wilson-Raybould even have to say no to anything? Why exactly. was she being asked the question to say no to? 100%. Because it is in our tradition, that is a tradition that goes all the way back to Magna Carta, for which people have paid by their life. Sir Thomas More paid by his life when he refused to agree with Henry VIII, you know, and he was sent to the tower and, and executed, and so on and so forth, that you do not interfere with the attorney general. The office of the attorney general, that is the prosecution or the execution and the protection of the rule of law, cannot be influenced by political consideration. That's exactly what Justin Trudeau did. He broke our tradition. He broke the manner in which we take immense pride that our system, the rule of law, is not the Stalinist system. Pick up the man and I'll tell you what the crime is. Yeah. But now we have the fox guarding the chicken coop. I mean, the liberal government dominate the Justice Committee, they dominate the Ethics Committee, who have both shut down any debate on this particular matter. How does a system like the Canadian system get around such a rigging of the system? Well, this is a long story. This is the story about what has happened to our parliamentary system, where the members of parliament are just sitting ducks to say, yeah, yeah, nay, nay, to the prime minister, who in effect is simply another dictator, so long he has a majority, you know, and it is his wish that is carried through. And so, as a majority government, the liberal at the present time in the parliament has majority in the respective committees, the Justice Committee, the Ethics Committee, and none of the members of the Justice Committee or the Ethics Committee took a position outside of what the prime minister wants. That is, an independent, objective position that the former Attorney General Jody Wilson-Raybaugh should have the opportunity to speak to rebut what was a rebuttal, in effect, by Gerald Butts, by Michael Wernick. She was not given the opportunity. And instead, the Liberal Party, under the Prime Minister directing the Prime Minister himself, has been leaking confidential issues 
confidential conversation, confidential discussions in the cabinet to, in a sense, destroy the personal credibility of the former attorney general. I understand that the conservative opposition almost won a vote of no confidence a while back, but it was scuttled by the, by the Speaker of the House. Exactly. The Speaker of the House delayed the vote and gave a second vote to the, to, the, to the Liberal Party so that the Liberal Party could go around and bring in their absentee members back into the parliament to vote. There's a, a concept in American politics called checks and balances, and they have a, a far superior system, I think, in that regard than the Canadian system. And in any justice system, there are a number of people from the commission of a, a criminal act to the incarceration or the, at least the administration of justice, there's a number of people. And if any one of them fail in personal integrity, I think the system collapses. With Justice Smollett, it was the prosecution. The police did their job. The mayor did his job. <laughs> Rahm Emanuel condemned the prosecution. And the people gathering the evidence did their job. But you have a prosecutor who didn't do their job or... Perhaps they did, and we just don't know. But the very fact that that case is sealed causes suspicion. But here in, uh, with the SNC-Lavalin case, you have a number of people involved to get to justice. That's the end goal, Lady Liberty or Lady Justice with her scales. And if one person interferes in that very long and convoluted and complex process, the system is derailed and we can no longer trust our system of justice. Right. And look at this matter. We are now stepping out of the issue of SNC-Lavalin. We are stepping into the issue of the rule of law. The attorney general said no to the prime minister, that she will not be influenced when it comes to the, her decision, which is only her decision according to our tradition, and the decision made by her professionals that is, the people in the Office of Public Prosecution Service. So, what does the rule of law administration mean? Indictment, prosecution, in a court of law, the defendant is there on the basis of uh, a presumption of innocence. That means it is now the responsibility the burden of proof to be provided by the prosecution, not the defendant. And it is for the defendant to destroy the evidence by their argument. And then for the jury or the judge to decide whether the prosecution met the level of the proof required to call the defendant guilty or to dismiss the case. Now, if SNC-Lavalin is convinced that they are innocent victim of whatever happened in Libya, and they are not responsible for that. They could have gone to court, should have gone to court, not been asking for remedial agreement, be totally confident, and let the chip fall where it may. That is what the lady in the blindfold is all about, holding the scale, you know. Instead of the process that is the rule of law, the rule of law is a process, it has to be not only that justice is done, it has to also be seen that justice is being done fairly and equitably. It is there that the prime minister and his people were putting their finger on the scale to tilt it and therefore abort the rule of law. 
That's what the Canadian public, I believe, is coming to understand. This then, Your Majesty, is the great Magna Carta, limiting the powers of the King and establishing the rights of man. It needs only your signature to make it the law of the land. You, the Earl of Huntington, you call yourself a loyal subject. This is treason! Treason! I'll hang you and all the barons who follow your flag. Seize the traitor! Seize him! I can't just phone up the Globe and have them publish a salary. There's a process for this. Okay, here is uh, the thing. His mother is dying, and she thinks that he can't afford the nursing care. She, he tells her, I make $137,000, but she doesn't believe him. She says that's impossible. How could you make that much money? You know, he wants her to read it in the paper because she's going senile, and, and she's at that stage where she'll believe anything that she reads in the Globe and Mail. Celine, just before the break, you know, we're talking about SNC perhaps being aware of its own guilt in some way with regard to what happened in Libya. But I wonder what is Trudeau's motivation. Even the CEO of SNC has said it's not about the 9,000 jobs that Trudeau tried to make it about. And if it's not about that, and if SNC-Lavalin is saying it's not about that, obviously I'm surprised they didn't jump behind that right behind Trudeau if they were looking for some kind of a of a scapegoat to get out of this whole situation, and they're they're throwing away a perfectly good <laughs> excuse, if you want want to call it that. Do they actually feel that they're guilty of anything? And if it's not the nine thousand jobs, then that really does beg a question, doesn't it, about what is Trudeau's motivation? If the nine thousand jobs aren't a real real concern. Well, you're going with what Neil Bruce, the CEO of SNC, right. has said in response to the question of it's all about job. And he has said, no, it is not about job. And Can we trust him? Oh, pardon? Can we trust him now? I mean, given the fact of the history of SNC level, and can we trust what he's going to okay, say? Okay, no. So now we are, we, are, we, are, we are getting back to why Neil Bruce has said that and what is, the, what is the current CEO. He was not the CEO in 2015. He was hired recently. So what is the context within which Neil Bruce has said what he has said? And what was their demand or their request, their lobbying effort to get the DPA? The answer that we can see from the public documents and what has been put in the public realm is as follows. The SNC's argument or case in its own defense is the present SNC-Lavalin, the people who are running the SNC, the top management, the top officials who make these decisions. It is not the people at the level of doing the work, the mm -hmm. engineers, the sure. crew, and so on. It is the decision makers. That is an entirely new SNC. This is not the SNC of 2015. This is not the SNC that was doing business with Libya or with the Jacques Cartier Bridge or with the bridge in, in Bangladesh for which the World Bank you know, penalized them. This is a new SNC. That means they have done a complete house cleaning and, and they have come back with a new commitment 
to do their job within the framework of what the law says, what their responsibility are as a professional engineering and construction company, and because it's a business operation, to the shareholders. And their argument is that whatever happened, they are not denying it, whatever happened in the past, for that, the current SNC administration, but more particularly its working people and the shareholder should not be penalized. I would agree with that. And that's actually a good story that these these things coming to light have changed the working environment at a company like SNC-Lavalin. Uh, another good news story, I think, out of this particular corruption scandal is... Let's go back to that chain of people I was talking about for justice to be served. And one of the key elements of a justice system is a fair and honest and open and uh, press who have integrity and who seek justice. And in this particular case, this would never have been an issue. It never would have come to the light of day unless it was for the Globe and Mail and the reporter, Robert Fife, I believe, who broke this story in the first place. And it's, it's a credit to that particular industry, the press, that they still have people like that willing to go against the, the prevailing winds of, of politics to come out here and expose something as crucial as obstruction of justice. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the role in the classic sense of the fourth estate, that is the media, the journalist, is to be the watchdog for the public on the behavior and activity of the government and people in power or in any position of authority. And I imagine, I take it for granted that both you, Robert and Bobby, that's the role that you are playing in, in the sense of you're part of that larger term, media, yes. that you want to explore the issues, you want to go into depth, you want to examine the thing on its merit and let the chip fall where it may. And so, yes, Robert Five and the Globe and Mail on this issue, on this story, has, I think, in many ways vindicated the reputation of the media and what it had become. At least here in Canada. In the United States, yeah. they've got a long right. way to because go. Because you don't get that from CBC, <laughs> the mother corporation. No, we have our problems, No, too. but you know uh, something? There are times the CBC does shine. Not often, but they are not totally corrupt like a CNN or an MSNBC. No, no. I mean, we're, we're still yeah, doubling down to this day on the, we, we, on the Russian collusion story. Yeah, I think anything in the world is nothing like the American media. So, mm. I mean, we are, we are not comparing apple and oranges here. <laughs> but we are talking about... Uh, within the context of our own culture and country, the mother corporation is heavily leaning in one direction. Oh, of course it, it is. It is not a balanced thing. Yes. So, so coming back. But, but they do hire Rex but, Murphy. But, but I, I, I want to, before we, <laughs> we run out of time, I want to come back to the rule of law, which we began with. And whatever is the merit of Neil Bruce's argument as the new CEO of uh, SNC-Lavalin and who have directly contradicted the claims of uh, Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister Trudeau, and his story, whatever the merits of that is, it doesn't take away the fundamental argument of the rule of law that this matter had been decided. It was going to be presented to the court. It would then unfold, the case would unfold within the administration of law and our justice system. And 
the defendant would have the fullest opportunity because of the presumption of innocence. That is the basis of our rule of law. Fullest opportunity to present their side of the story. And at the end of the day, they might have been acquitted. And this huge case that had been put together by the Department of the Public Prosecution Services would have ended up as a big thud. Or on the other hand, SNC would have been penalized. We cannot prejudge. One of the fundamentals of the rule of law is you do not prejudge it. In other words, you don't put your finger because you have the power on the scale that the lady with the blindfold is holding. And that is what was done by Justin Trudeau. One of the things that Trudeau did that really seemed to slip under the, the radar was the jobs excuse. And you just said it. There is no excuse. Or you can't just say that I'm going to let this criminal behavior proceed because of jobs or because I'm a Quebec politician and there's an election coming up, which is what he said to oh, yeah. Jody Wilson-Raybould. <laughs> He said, That's, I'm a member of Papineau, yeah, you know. That is not a reason to obstruct justice. As a matter of fact, that's an admission of obstruction of justice. In a society that would be far more alert about these issues and caring about the, these issues, in, in the sense the rule of law, which is the fundamental issue in any society that claims to be just and equitable, this prime minister would have lost the confidence of the house and he would be gone. And uh, I think, that, again, there's another good, good story coming out of this, and that is the fact that with the Internet today, with shows like this and with commentators on their own blog sites and on YouTube and all that, you need that to complement a decaying legacy media, mainstream media, if you will. And it's because of that that we see recently, for example, in European Parliament, Article 13 being passed, which makes it harder to put something up on YouTube or put anything up on the Internet. We see things, uh, laws being passed, United States and Canada, which are hampering and hindering uh, free exchange of ideas. We see Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, Alphabet, Google, all of these companies cracking down on the expression of free ideas and free inquiry. But the good news story is that it still exists. Even though there's a lot of opposition, opposition to it, we still exist. Okay, and we're not going to go away just because Facebook may, <laughs> may quelch how many people see our posts or something silly like that. Well, thanks for joining us again, Celine, and for helping us play our part in being the watchdog of the fourth estate. And that's another reason Who for... Who the watchers? Yeah. We do. And that's another reason for you to join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. Every time we turn on the news, I kind of blame the media for what's going on wrong in the world right now. Because they kind of just perpetuate stereotypes about people. They don't tell you that's what they're doing. They don't go, hey, this is what you need to think. But they know how people's brains work. What they do, they enforce all this shit, you know? What they do is they'll show you an image of somebody of a different racial background, and then they'll show you an alternate image, like right away, of something completely different. They don't say the two images are together. They kind of present it like, what do you think? <laughs> like what they do is they'll show you like an Asian guy, 
and then a car accident. I'll show you an Indian guy and a 7-Eleven. What do you think? I'll show you an Arab guy and an explosion. I knew it, you know. But that's what they do. They, they convince us that things aren't what we think, you know.